Well, if you turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Samuel chapter 26, 1 Samuel chapter 26 is where we'll be this Lord's Day as we continue in our study of God's Word together. If you were with us last Lord's Day, you know that in 1 Samuel 25, we came to a point in the Scripture where we saw David responding foolishly to a situation. And so Nabal was a man who had lots of flocks and lots of servants, and he had them out in the fields, and there was a period of time there where David's men were protecting them. But David, when he asked for kindness in return from Nabal, was met with ill treatment. And so David acts very rashly and foolishly. He uh, makes an attempt to go and pursue Nabal and his men and to put them to death. But God in His grace restrains David through the intervention of Abigail, Nabal's wife. And where we ended in that passage was Nabal dies. I mean, God essentially takes his life. Now, what I didn't cover at the end of 1 Samuel 25 that you may have noted there is that there are a few extra verses I didn't get to there where essentially what happens next is Nabal, or excuse me, David then marries uh, Nabal's widow Abigail. And if you've been following the story, you know at that point that David already has a wife. In fact, he already has two wives at that point. Uh, Saul had taken his first wife from him and given, it to, given her to another. Uh, he had married someone else, and now he marries Abigail. And so uh, you may be wondering, well, what do we do with that? What do we do with David, who supposed to be a man after God's own heart, and yet we see here clearly in Scripture polygamy in him marrying multiple women. What do we say about that? Well, we say it's wrong. <laughs> it's sin. It's a violation of God's command concerning marriage of one man and one woman and a covenant for life. And we're going to see more about this as we move forward in David's story. But for now, we need to note that that was absolutely wrong. And we also need to note that when God's Word unfolds before us, it's not cleansed, it's not wiped of the warts of God's people. We see their sin and we see their flaws, which helps to remind us that the goal in the Christian life is not to become more like David. It's not to become more like these people in the Scripture. The goal in the Christian life is to become more like Jesus. And so we'll see in today's passage uh, the flaws continue in David's life and in others' life, lives, but hopefully we'll see the need to go point us towards Christ. And so we're going to look at 1 Samuel 26, uh, the entirety of this chapter, verses 1 through 25, and out of reverence for God's word, if you're able to, if you would stand together as I read this text for us. And this is what God's word says. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakalah, which is on the east of Jessimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hakalah, which is beside the road on the east of Jessamon. But David remained in the wilderness, and when he saw that Saul had come after him into the wilderness. He sent out spies and learned that Saul indeed had come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech, the Hittite, 
and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zeruah, who will go down with me into the camp of Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping with the encampment, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now, please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear. Now, I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man? Who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king your lord. This is the thing that you've done that's not good. As the Lord lived, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my Lord, O king. And he said, Why does the Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore, let my Lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. Now therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a terrible, great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men bring it over and take it to you. And the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, but I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. And may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way and Saul returned to his place. If you would, pray with me. Father God, we thank you 
this Lord's Day for your word. We thank you, God, for that which points us towards the righteousness that we find in Christ and in Christ alone. And we pray, God, that we might understand deeper what it means to be covered by the righteousness of Jesus as we consider this passage today. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you were with us last week, I mentioned a a familiar saying that uh, we often say, we often hear. That's that uh, those who uh, neglect to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And we tend to make the same mistakes over and over again if we don't learn from them. I also noted another quote along with that, that what we learn from history is that people don't learn from history. (laughs) We see this repetitive nature so often, and we especially see it as we come now to 1 Samuel chapter 26. We, We see this in Saul. We've been to this place before. In fact, as I was reading the passage today, perhaps you thought, well, haven't we already been here? <laughs> now, hasn't he already preached on this? This sounds very familiar, and it should, because essentially what happens in chapter 26 is very similar to what happens in chapter 24. You have Saul intent on killing David, and he pursues him and comes after him. You have David, who has the opportunity to kill Saul, and then he doesn't kill him, and then that leads to a sort of a peace agreement towards the end. This is repetitive. In fact, when we think about Saul seeking to take David's life, that's rather repetitive. It goes all the way back to when David, under the power of the Holy Spirit, slayed the giant Goliath. You'll remember that scene where Goliath, the giant among the Philistines, had come out against the armies of the living God and had taunted them and had dared them to send one of their soldiers out to fight him. And you remember how Saul didn't go and no one was willing to go, but out comes David from the fields where he'd been watching his father's flock and he is willing to go up against the giant. And so when David does that and when Goliath is defeated, uh, that whole group, that whole army along with Saul and David are are going back to Saul's uh, home. And as they're doing that, the women from the cities are coming out and they're singing praises to David instead of Saul. And this invokes anger in Saul. This invokes rage in Saul. And so then we see Saul trying to take David's life. And so they're there at the dinner table, and Saul gets enraged, and he picks up a spear, and he throws it at David. And we've noted many times how he must have had terrible aim because he misses him across the table. And then he tries to orchestrate events in that same chapter, chapter 18, where he tries to get the Philistines to kill David. And then he tries to kill David again with a spear. And then he gets upset at Jonathan and gets upset at others who would try to help David. He tries to kill his own son at one point with a spear. In fact, he gets so upset at the priest of Nob because he believes that they've helped David to escape that he wipes all of them out. And then we come to more recent chapters where Saul is trying to track down David and kill him. And yet in every one of those occasions, Saul was unsuccessful. He was unable to harm David. And in fact, one of the things that kept him from being successful was God would send wisdom to him. He would send people who would speak wisdom to him and even would send David who would speak wisdom to him. And so we saw this at the end of chapter 24 where it seemed that Saul was repentant, where it seemed that Saul's heart had changed. In fact, at the end of that chapter, we have Saul acknowledging that David indeed will be the king one day. He seems to be a changed man. 
But then we pick up the scripture today and we find his heart had not changed at all. We find that what we learn from history is that people don't learn from history. And the reason fundamentally that Saul does not learn from history is because Saul is unrepentant. Which brings us to the first point there in your outline. A genuine repentance involves turning from sin and turning to God. Genuine repentance is when we turn from sin and turn to God. We, we speak of repentance often. I often will mention repentance from the pulpit. It's important that we all understand what it is that we mean when we talk about repentance. See, repentance is not just feeling bad about something. Repentance is not just feeling sorry you did the wrong thing. Repentance is when we are in sin and we turn from that sin and we turn to God, His Word, and His ways. It's when there's a change in our heart, our attitude, our action. It's when we turn away from that sin and don't just keep repeating it over and over and over and over. And so we, we notice here with Saul, the end of 1 Samuel 24, he, he's sorrowful. He acknowledges that he's wrong. He says that the thing he's done is evil. He confesses that David will indeed be the king. He asked David to show mercy to him and his household. But what we see from today's passage is that Saul's heart didn't really change. Notice what we learned here. We pick up in verse 1 of chapter 26 and Saul, word comes to him uh, of where David is. Now, I mentioned this before, but we should note that at the end of chapter 24, where it seems to be that peace is made between Saul and David, there's an indication there that David realizes at that point that Saul's not really repentant. Because Saul says to David, well, you're going to be king, but David doesn't just suddenly become king. And in fact, if you read chapter 24, you find it ends with Saul going to his home and David going back into the wilderness to the stronghold to hiding. He doesn't trust Saul, and there's good reason for that. Because now we see, we learn that Saul was still breathing murderous intentions. He, he still wanted to take David's life. He's still enraged towards him. What we find here is evidence that he's not genuinely repentant. And how do we know that? It's because Saul keeps returning to the same old sin over and over and over again. It's rather easy for us to read chapter 26 and to, to see that about Saul. But what about you? Well, what about me? Do you see a similar pattern in your own life? Where you keep struggling with the same sin over and over and over again? Do you find yourself in a situation where you're saying to someone, listen, I know I've said it before, but I just need to say it again. I'm sorry, and I'm not going to do this anymore. Only to find yourself then saying again, I'm sorry, and, and I'm really not going to do this anymore. I mean, have you ever been on the receiving end of that, of someone who... They just keep doing the same sin over and over and over again. And they, they seem so sincere in their apology. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And they beg and they plead for forgiveness. I'm not going to do this again. I'm not going to do this again. But you know that they're going to do it again. Over and over and over. 
we find this familiar cycle in God's Word and in our own lives. We sin, we feel guilty, we vow, we try harder, we sin, we feel guilty, we vow, we try harder, over and over and over and over. I think that's an indication at times of a lack of repentance. And I think the reason that we see here that that Saul is just dealing with the same thing, that in one moment he wants to kill David, and then he seems to relent, but then he goes right back to wanting to kill David. He throws a spear, he apologizes, he throws a spear again. He comes after David, he's going to kill him, he feels bad. He goes after David again. Because there's not genuine heart change in Saul. Again, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Paul is saying very clearly here that there are two types of grief. There are two types of sorrow. There's kind of that grief, that worldly grief. You feel bad and you should feel bad. You did the wrong thing. You have a moral compass. You, you feel guilty about it. You realize it was wrong. Or maybe you don't feel so guilty about it, so sorry about it. You're just sorry you got caught. You're sorry you got in trouble. That's kind of a worldly grief. But he said that there's something deeper than there. That there's a sorrow from the Holy Spirit that's a godly grief that leads us to repentance. And friends, that's a grief that comes to understand the gravity and the weight of sin before a holy God. That's when you understand God and His righteousness and His holiness and what we truly are deserving of in our sin. And we feel a conviction of it and a weight of it and we want to turn from it. That's a godly grief that leads us to repentance. What we need to understand is that even when we genuinely repent, well, we still struggle with sin. And we see that in the next point there in your outline. People who genuinely repent still struggle with sin. Again, it's easy for us to look at Saul and look at how he doesn't really repent. He does the same thing over and over again. But, but how do we deal with David here? David, who the big picture of the Scripture, of the Psalms, of the responses he writes, David, who we see there at times genuine, authentic repentance and a genuine cry to the Lord, how do we reconcile that he still struggles with sin? We reconcile that with the understanding that people who genuinely repent still struggle with sin. And so notice David's response here. Saul is coming after him. David learns that Saul is coming after him. And so David decides he's going to sneak into Saul's camp and take someone with him. Now you might read that, and perhaps as we were, I was reading it, you thought, how is that even possible? I mean, the picture here is you've got Saul, and he's sleeping, and you've got the commander of his army there beside him, and then 3,000 people are around him. How in the world could David and someone else sneak into that camp without being recognized? You think about that for a second. I can't sneak to the refrigerator and get ice cream at night without two or three people knowing. 
I mean, how could they sneak through thousands of people? Well, the Scripture tells us. Verse 12. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. This is the deep sleep that God had brought on Adam when He removed a rib out of his body to create Eve. This was something God did in His providence and sovereignty to make these men sleep, I think, big picture, in order to protect David's life. And so they go in unnoticed because of what God had done here. Now notice David, before going in, he asked for volunteers and uh, Abishai wants to go with him and they get there to Saul and Abishai looks at him and says, well, this is great. I mean, here he is and nobody's awake for some reason. I mean, this is God ordained for you to take Saul out. Verse 8, David you don't even have to do it. David, I will take this spear, and trust me, I'm a whole lot better shot than Saul is. It's going to take one shot, and it's all over. Verse 9, David says, we can't raise our hand against the Lord's anointed. When we read that, it flows really well, but I think we need to step back and consider how long was the pause between verse 8 and verse 9. How much time goes by between Abishai saying, David, I can end this right now and take Saul out. How much time goes by between that and David getting to the point where he says, we're not going to do that. And the reason that I kind of emphasize there was likely a pause there is because we need to ask the question, why were they there in the first place? I mean, what was the point of David taking the brother of the commander of his army into the camp of Saul to where he would sneak up on him and be standing over his body. What was the point of that? And I think as we really think about that, we, we perhaps get a glimpse here of one of David's temptations and struggles. I think that David likely got into that situation because David's intention was to finish what he hadn't finished in the cave. I think perhaps David at this moment is ready to take matters into his own hands. I mean, sure, at the end of chapter 24, everything looks good. Saul seems repentant. David's going to go on his way. Saul said, David, you're going to be the king. But now here he is again, and here's Saul coming after him. And how many more times will Saul bring 3,000 men before it's all over for David? I mean, we noted this before. I mean, consider... If you had someone attacking you, attacking you, pursuing you, pursuing you, wronging you, wronging you, the response of our culture and sadly at times of our church is to say, well, it's time just to strike back at them. You can only turn so many cheeks. David, you need to take matters into your own hands. Perhaps David is still angry about Nabal. I mean, Nabal, in an offense that was much less than what Saul had done, had offended David to the point where David is going in strapped on his sword and he's ready to kill not only Nabal but all of Nabal's men and he gets stopped by Abigail and God's providence but maybe he's still mad. Maybe he's still got a thirst for vengeance. And maybe he realizes in that moment which I think the scripture would indicate that that was wrong of him to go after Nabal but maybe he's come back and he's thought a lot more about Saul and thought, you know, the cave was one thing 
But if his heart hadn't really changed, then, then maybe I just need to deal with this on my own. Maybe he had even had a conversation with Abishai on the way and kind of had reconciled, well, you know, maybe if I don't strike him with the spear, but you strike him with the spear, maybe that'll be okay. See, people who repent genuinely still struggle with sin and temptation. And I think that's the picture we see here with David. It's a picture we see throughout the Scripture. Consider Romans chapter 7. In Romans chapter 7, you've got Paul writing about his struggle with sin. In Romans 7, verse 15, Paul writes, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do what I don't do, what I want to do, but I do the very thing I hate. I mean, Paul essentially says, okay, here's what I should be doing, and I'm not doing it, and here's what I shouldn't be doing, and I am doing it. And he's just stepping back and looking at this and saying, what a miserable sinner I am. Who can help me in this misery that I'm in? I keep doing the stuff I shouldn't do. I'm not doing the stuff I should do. And friend, I think that we can all identify at some point with Romans 7. And we all find ourselves in that same cycle of sin, feel guilty, vow to try harder. Sin, feel guilty, vow to try harder. We do not do what we should. We do what we shouldn't. The question is, how are we going to respond when we get to that recognition, how do we respond in the midst of the temptation and struggle with sin when we realize we're doing the things we shouldn't do and we're not doing the things we should do? Well, notice David's response here. He gets out of the situation. <laughs> I mean, he has snuck into the camp. He's standing over the body of Saul. He has the opportunity to end all of it. But somewhere between verse 8 and verse 9, I believe he is convicted and he realizes, just like he did in the cave, this is not the way to go. He should not lift his hand against the Lord's anointed. He should not allow Abishai to lift his hand against the Lord's anointed. They need to get out of there. I think there's a lesson there for us that sometimes that the best way for us to deal with our struggle with sin is to get out of the situation in which we're struggling with sin. It's to flee. It's to run. It's to escape. And not just to bear up under it and think, well, I'm, I'm just going to become a pro at dealing with this and I'm just going to show how strong I am. No, you and I are weak. That's the resounding lesson from Scripture. And... It's not like we need a new playbook year after year and new ways to sin. We struggle with the same old stuff over and over and over again. We read an ancient text from thousands of years ago and guess what? They're struggling with the same stuff we're struggling with today. We don't need new inventive ways to sin. The old ways work just fine. And the way, one of the ways we deal with this for those who are genuinely repentant, is we get out of those situations. And that's what David does here. But first, before he goes, he takes Saul's spear, he takes this jar of water that's resting there by him, because these will be used in God's providence to show Saul that yet again his life has been spared. Then again, it shows just God's power here that he keeps people asleep while you know, David's probably got all kinds of armor jingling and a jug of water swishing and they're just able to go right out of there. 
after they go, we read that David calls out to Saul and his army, and first he calls out Abner. And, you know, I think this might be a bit unfair to Abner, because after all, God had put Abner to sleep in the same way he put Adam to sleep, and if he could take a rib out of Adam without waking him up, I mean, Abner wasn't going to wake up. But David here calls him out anyways and says that, that he's a failure. And, and then Saul hears David's voice. And they have a very similar exchange. It's the same thing that we saw in chapter 24. It's, it's Saul recognizing that David did the right thing and that he had done the wrong thing. It's Saul saying he's a sinner. It's, it's this exchange of pleasantries to an extent. Uh, David, even at this point, sends Saul's spear back over to him. Perhaps he's not real afraid of Saul's aim. But then notice in verse 23, something David says to Saul. He says, The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointing. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. That's a, that's a good word. That, that's a true word. That's, that's a word we saw in the psalm we read earlier. But consider the person saying that word. I mean, here's David saying, Now Saul, you got to understand, the Lord rewards righteousness and integrity, and I did not put out my hand against you. And perhaps even Saul was thinking, wait, what were you doing in the camp again? Well, why is it you were standing over me with my spear in your hand? <laughs> that doesn't exude a picture of righteousness and faithfulness and trust in the Lord. And even if you take this account out of the picture, think of all the times that David has sinned Think of all the ways that David is going to sin. And you realize really quick that David is not the one who is perfectly righteous and faithful. And you take the eyes off of David for a second and you use the scripture as it's called to be used as a mirror and you look at yourself and I look at myself and we realize real quick we're not perfectly righteous or faithful either, are we? Romans chapter 3, none is righteous, no, not one. The wages of sin is death. We've all sinned and fall short of God's glory. So what do we do with this verse? The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness, but none of us are perfectly righteous and faithful. Well, friends, this, this is what calls our attention to Jesus and the gospel and brings us to that last point, that, that reminder we often need, that we're saved by Christ's righteousness. You're not saved by your righteousness. I'm not saved by my righteousness. You're, you're not going to stand before God one day and He says, well done, my good and, and, and perfect servant. You are perfectly faithful. You are perfectly sinless. No. No, we are saved by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He took Him who knew no sin to become sin on our part. To bear the weight of our sin. And this passage drives us towards that. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Jesus knew no sin. God made Him who 
to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus on the cross that He did not deserve bears the full weight and penalty of our sin that we do deserve. And when we repent and trust in Him, we receive His full righteousness that we do not deserve. It is the best exchange we could ever get. He takes the debt of our sin and we receive the fullness of His righteousness. And friends, that is the only way. The only way. The only way through which we have access to a holy God. We have no hope in anything else. That is why we sing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. It is through His blood, His righteousness, that we might be saved. And so if your hope is in anything else this morning, then you have no hope. That's why the Scripture drives us to put our hope in Jesus, drives us to the righteousness of Christ. I thought about this this week, and I'll illustrate it this way. I had an opportunity to do something this week that I haven't done for over a year now because of COVID. I got to go to a, to a conference, a ministry conference, and, and it was wonderful. I went up to Indianapolis, and uh, there were thousands of folks there at this conference, and we were able to worship together and, and hear some, some great sermons together. It was a wonderful time of fellowship, and of course there were COVID protocols and all these things, but but what really just kind of connected the dots a bit for me was this. Outside of the convention center, there were all these checkpoints. And to get into the convention, to get into the area to worship and sing and learn and all this stuff, to get in there, you, you had to have on your, your wristband. That The wristband was evidence that your price had been paid, that, that, that you indeed were able to go into that conference. You had been registered. Your price had been paid. You could go in. And so, essentially, you could walk in all these different entry points, and every one of them had different security folks, and there wasn't much of a verbal exchange. You just did this, and they did this, and then you walked right in. I got my wristband. I can go in. But if you got to that checkpoint, and you did this, and there was no wristband, then they do this, and you didn't go in. And that was as simple as it could be. That there was no other arrangement. That there was no stopping in that moment without the wristband and saying, oh, you know what, I, I forgot it. They would say, well, then go get it. That there was no pleading your case and saying, well, well wait a second, you, I mean, I mean, don't you know who I am? I mean, I'm, I'm Brother Richard. I, I'm pastor of the Bloomfield Baptist Church. I mean, Surely, surely I have a place in this conference. Surely I can come in this door. I mean, surely it's not going to hurt anybody if you let me just slide in. I've told you I've already paid. I don't have evidence of that payment, but, but it's not going to hurt anybody. I mean, I'm, I'm a pastor. I'm not going to lie to you about this. That wouldn't work. It also wouldn't work for me in that moment to say, okay, well, let me just let me take out my wallet. Let me just pay you right now. That, that's not how it works. That wasn't the arrangement. You showed Evidence of payment, you entered in. Without evidence of payment, you did not go in. There's a picture there. And I think it's the picture we see here. That, that one day, 
The scripture says it's appointed once for man to die and then comes judgment. One day we are going to stand before a holy God. We're not going to be able to plead our case. We're not going to go through a resume. There's not going to be a set of scales. It's not going to be a movie of our life playing in the background. We're going to stand before a holy God and we will either bear the nail-marked hands of Jesus Christ and be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ and we will show we're covered by the blood of Jesus and we will be welcomed into paradise or we will face the judgment of a holy God that we rightly deserve. There's no pleading our case. There's no writing a check. There's no listing off all our merits and deeds. Jesus says clearly, he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. No back doors. No other entrances. It's only through the righteousness of Jesus. And the Scripture tells us clearly how we come to be covered by Christ's righteousness. How we come to identify with Him on the cross. And it is through what we're called to in Romans 10. If we will confess Jesus as Lord and we believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. And all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Friends, have you done that? Have you confessed Jesus as your Lord? Do you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, that He died on the cross in your place? And, and have you submitted your life to Him and His, His Lordship? Have you genuinely repented and put your trust in Jesus? If you have, the good news is your future is secure. Your price has been paid. But if you've not, friend, then the call for you today, while there is still a today, is to repent and to trust in Jesus. And I pray that's what you'll do. And so we want to give you that opportunity now. If you'll stand together as I pray for us. Father God, we thank you for the free offer of the gospel of Jesus. We thank you that Jesus paid it all and all to him we owe. We thank you that you demonstrate your love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you, Lord, that if we will confess... Christ is Lord and believe in our heart that you raised him from the dead, we will be saved. We thank you, God, that that invitation is available to everyone. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. I pray, God, for anyone here who's yet to call on you. In the name of Jesus, I pray today they would. I pray for others, Lord, who perhaps genuinely have repented and called on the name of Jesus, but that this morning they are, they are convicted of sin in their life. That they're struggling with it. And, and perhaps they're running headstrong into it. I pray, God, that you would stop them, that they would have a moment like David did between verse 8 and verse 9 where you, you convict them with the power of your Holy Spirit and, and where they repent and turn from that sin they're running towards and in. Lord, I pray that you would do this work and these things. It's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Friends, we're going to respond to God's word, all of us.
through lifting our voice and, and, and singing about the trust we have in God. It's the only one in whom we can trust. And as we sing, we invite you to repent, to confess, to pray. And if God is leading, we invite you to come. To come and, and publicly confess Christ as Lord. To, to then follow through in obedience and planning out believers' baptism. To start the process of joining this church family. Maybe you just need someone to pray with you and I'd be privileged to do that. And so we invite you to come, we invite you to sing during this time as we all respond. Thank you.